0: It was the first raise. I was really nervous being in control of other people's money. I didn't mm-hmm. want to do it. And so I had some investors that were investing with me on the single family properties, but this was too, too big. So I was going to, I knew I was going to start doing a bigger deal. So I started going to business groups and investors. And that's basically how I raised th- those funds. I hate gotcha. it too. I hate going to these I hated going to the business meetings. I hated going to business networking international. I became a member there. The Citrus Club, which is a national group. Every state has one. I started going there. But yeah, it was like that first raid was brutal because I'm really an introvert. Mm. Yeah, I really don't too. I don't like talking to people I don't know. It sounds weird, doesn't it?
1: This is the Naked Truth about real estate investing. Your host, Javier, has already been through all the brain damage of this business, so you don't have to go through it. That way, you're not exposed to all of the risk of losing your shirt or getting caught with your pants down. So let's dive into another No BS episode right now. Welcome, everybody, to today's Capital Raising Show. I'm your host, Tim Mai, and today I have my good friend, and awesome speaker on the line with us, Dave Lindahl. They've been in the real estate investing space since 1996, so a long time. That's what, 30 years? I don't know. It's been a long time, right? Almost 30 years. Um, And yeah, yeah and, and you has know, been a long time. He's like the OG when it comes to apartment investing, multifamily investing. I remember buying your home study course, Dave, back in 2002, 2003, when I first got started. So it's been a long I didn't time. have hair. <laughs> yeah, so it's been a long time. Um, they've uh, specialized in uh, emerging real estate markets, and um, he since 1996 he has uh, created a portfolio of over 9,000 units um, in 18 different markets across the U.S and have raised over $250 000, million, $1,000 million dollars for all the deals. And Dave is a, a principal in the Lindahl Group, a commercial real estate investment company that focuses in multifamily office and hotels. And Dave has also written two number one best-selling books on multifamily investing called Multifamily Millions and Emerging Real Estate Markets. Dave lives in Boston with his growing family of three kids super cute kids so welcome dave to our capital raising show
0: thanks sam glad to be
1: here awesome okay well let's get so if you can share with us a little bit on how you got started and and especially how you get started into the multi-family apartment space while most everyone else gets started in the, the single family space
0: yeah, like you said, that was a long time ago, back in 1996. I had left a uh, stint in a rock and roll band that I was in for a few years. Yeah, and I uh, just wanted to do something with my life, make some money. Started a landscaping company in the wintertime in Boston. Can't do much landscaping. I went into doing odd jobs, all kinds of odd jobs, snow plowing. And, and then a bank friend, a friend who worked for a bank asked me to do the rehab for a property that the bank was going to uh, that foreclosed on and was going to resell. Mm-hmm. They didn't ask me if I wanted to buy. It just if I do the repairs. And I said, yes. Uh, he helped me win that bid. I had no idea how to do the repairs. And I did that. And then I realized that either homeowners or investors were buying these properties. And the investors were going to make a lot more money than I was making doing the rehab. So I bought the Colton Sheets course. Remember him? Yep. <laughs> yeah, from a long time ago. Uh, he was always on the TV. So I bought his course. I was so busy back then with my, my landscaping company, my odd jobs, that I didn't really get to it. But six months later, he had the new and improved edition. So I got that and actually opened that one, told me, me, the best advice it had was go to your local real estate investment group, look around, see that there are people that are just like you. They talk like you, they act like you, they dress like you. Some of them are broke like you, uh, but they're making it in real estate. They know that you can do it too. And that's what I did. That was a big eye opener for me. And at the same time, everybody was doing single family. And then I saw an interview on biography with a guy by the name of Harry Helmsley, who started by, started broke buying and selling multifamily properties in New York City and ended, ended up owning the Empire State Building. Wow. And so the, the biographer said, Harry, was it about apartment buildings that got you going? Harry said that I always liked the idea that a group of people would pool their money together and give it to me every month so I could pay my mortgage. I could pay for people to do the maintenance of my property so I wouldn't have to swing hammers and, and take out the trash. I could They would pay for management companies to babysit them, to take their phone calls, to collect the rents. And at the end of the month, I'd have so much money, I'd have extra money after paying those expenses that I could um, go out, have some fun with, reinvest, or, or uh, put into my savings account. And I thought, man, if that's true, if you can, these people would give me money every month to pay off all of those expenses, pay down my mortgage so I could end up owning the building. And yet I would have money, cash flow, that I want in. And I mm-hmm. found
1: out 9,000 units later, I found out that it's true.
0: So that started, <laughs> that started the road to 9,000. We're close to 10,000 now.
1: Wow. That's amazing. And, uh, what, I know you, in, in your buy you mentioned 18 different markets. What are some of those states and markets that you're in?
0: Yeah. So at one time, as we were building our portfolio, we were actually in 18 different emerging markets. I wrote that book, Emerging Real Estate Markets. After I, I had learned, I discovered that my first three years, I would only buy three to six unit properties in a city called Brockton because I was afraid to buy anything bigger. Uh, my first uh, deal took nine months to do because I was afraid to buy it. And then I started learning about market cycles and timing and job growth. And, and I made a lot of money in a short period of time. In three years, I had over 40 properties, huge cash flow, millions of dollars in equity. And I learned about market cycles and I learned that I was gonna either lose it if I didn't go into cash or go into another market. So then I looked for ways to find other markets like Brockton was when I first started buying. I get lucky in Brockton. It was just coming out of a downturn. I was at the bottom of the cycle going up. The, there was a new mayor in town. There were corrupt mayors before him. He had created jobs in the economy. He built the MBTA system that brought transit out of Boston. So now you can live in Brockton, not own a car, and still work in Boston. So that the demand for uh, Brockton housing skyrocketed. And so I was in the right place at the right time. And I wanted to look for other right places at the right time, not get lucky, but do it methodically. I learned as much as I could about what makes markets move. It was Mm -hmm. really all about job growth. I learned that the Montgomery market was had just approved the Kia plant to be built. It's going to take a couple of years to build it. But that was the, the beginning of the end of the downside of that market. It was bringing in 15,000 new jobs. Each market has a multiplier effect when it's bringing in jobs. It's usually anywhere between three and 20. A multiplier is for every job that comes in, there's an ancillary job that needs to be created to service that job, like the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. Mm. So Montgomery only had three, a multiplier of three, but that still meant another 5,000 jobs coming over and above the 15. The best market I've ever been in with a multiplier was Huntsville, which had a multiplier mm. of 11 for each job that came in. Wow. So anyway, so I joined that market. With the, one of the things Montgomery had going for it was it had a barrier to entry. And uh, barrier to entries are great because it suppresses the supply on the market. So the barrier to entry for Montgomery was floodplains. You couldn't build in the floodplains. So you've got all these people coming in to to build the Kia plant and also to occupy the the additional 5,000 jobs. So there's 20,000 jobs coming in, but the supply remains the same. They can't build any more multifamily. So therefore, demand goes up, supplies remains the same, market takes off. And uh, so I hit that one right Uh, From there, I went up to Huntsville and then over to Jackson, Mississippi, and then to Texarkana, Texas, all following job growth. Uh, It was in Texarkana, Texas, that I was sitting at the bar having dinner because I was by myself. And uh, a guy next to me says, he heard me talking. He's like, you're obviously not from Texas. You must be from Boston. And I said, yeah. And he said, what are you doing down here? And I explained to him I was buying multifamily. And he said, why here? And I explained to my concept of emerging markets. And he said, oh, I'm a writer for Kipling's Magazine. He said, I'd love to do an article. Would you be willing to do an article with me? And I thought, my father told me if I went into the month, I was the derelict from the rock and roll bands. You know what I mean? Like I, <laughs> I had not made my parents proud for a long time. But I knew my father read Kiplinger's magazine. And I thought, if he saw me in Kiplinger's magazine, he would be proud. So I was like, absolutely. You want to do it right now? And he said, yes. And he wrote it. And three months later, it was in it. And I delivered it to my father. And he was just like shocked. I wish I took a <laughs> picture of him in my face. And Wiley called me like a month later and said, hey, just saw your article in Kipling. Did you want to write a book about that? Mm. And I was like, this would make my mother proud. So I wrote the Emerging Markets book. <laughs> that hit number one. They asked me to write another one. So I wrote Multi Family Millions. That hit number one. They asked me to write a third one. And I said, no way. They said, well, you might want to write it with this guy. He's a pretty good persuader. So I was like, no, I'm not writing another book for, because for me to write my books, I had to wake up an hour earlier in the morning. I'm a morning person. So I wake up at five. The only time I had was from four to five. So I would write from four to five for four months to get a book done. And I was mm-hmm. like, I'm doing that. I'm done doing books. He goes, I'm going to have this guy call you. And I was like, all right, but I'm done. So I got a call from Donald Trump. And he goes, Dave Lundon. I was like, yep. Yeah. He goes, this is Donald Trump. And I'm like, yeah, dad. I thought it was my father. <laughs> <laughs> He's like this real Kennedy. you know what I mean? Yeah, dad. He goes, no, this is Donald Trump. And I'm like, hmm, maybe it is. And he goes, I'm interested in, in writing a book. So I co-authored his flagship book, Commercial Real Estate Investing 101. And out of his 17 books, it was his only number one book. So I'm proud of that. That's fact. awesome. But anyway, so that's, how, so that's how I rolled into from three families in Brockton into 18 different markets, 9,000 plus units.
1: That's awesome. Just I complete, Yeah, I, I remember your co-author book with Trump. I completely forgot about that. And you don't have it in your bio, by the way.
0: No, because he's so iconic. Either people love him or they hate him. You know, we get some, The people that hate him, I mean, they really passionately hate him. And they send over like nasty messages. Hey, I wrote, oh, wow. He's a great book I wrote a book with him. So why? That does not have to send nasty messages about it. So yes. yeah, so we don't promote that book anymore. Gotcha. Wiley actually stopped. Wiley stopped uh,
1: printing it. Really? Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. So 9,000 units now. That's an amazing number. Did you start out saying, hey, I'm going yeah, to set, set a goal to have either X number of uh, units or X dollars of asset under management or anything like that?
0: No, the first goal was 100 units. Um, and then when I hit 100 units, I thought I could probably hit 1,000 units. And when mm-hmm. I started going into, this was before the, I knew anything about emerging markets. I got up to probably about 175 units. Uh, and that's when I went to Montgomery. And I didn't want to buy anything big in Montgomery. I wanted to still buy the three to six unit properties, but I was doing 1031 exchanges and I had more equity. I had to buy something like a 40 unit. I bought the biggest, smallest thing I could find, which was a 40 unit deal. And I bought that one. And very shortly after I bought an 80 unit. And between those two, I realized that it was actually easier to run these bigger deals than it was the smaller deals. It was easier to get financing. It was better quality management. The team members were just better quality because everybody Mm -hmm. gets paid usually based off of the percentage of something like the management company, percentage of revenues, the broker, the percentage of the sales price, the even the property inspector, the $50 per door to inspect the units. So you get the good ones. And when I realized that my next, my next one was actually, it wasn't Huntsville, it was Jackson, Mississippi for 350 units. And then wow. I went up to Huntsville for, for 400 units. And that was my biggest mistake uh, because I bought a 400 unit rehab that was Oh, it was 36% occupied. No, it was 46% occupied, but the, the, the economic occupancy was 26%. And I didn't know what I didn't know back then. And man, I took a bath on that one. I did actually, at one time, I was out of pocket $6 million trying to, and I had, that was one of my first investor deals. And I was wow. out of pocket $6 million because I didn't want to do a capital call to my investors. And what I thought was going to take me two, two years for a $3 million profit took me six years for a break even that was brutal. Wow. So I learned a lot, I learned a lot on that one. That's
1: yeah, those, the, the, that, those, type of, those type of deals always have great lessons from them for sure. So your first few deals, you didn't have to do like a syndication? You didn't do any kind mm-hmm. of a raise?
0: No when, I first, no, when I did my deals in Brockton, um, like I was broke. So I'd gone to a seminar to get as many credit cards as you can and use them, get them with the non-recurring fees and use them. So I actually bought my first couple of deals with credit cards, 70, okay. $71,000 deal, $71, deal, and then a $74,000 deal. Oh. But then I didn't have any more credit card money. So I started doing single family flips so I could use that money to buy more multifamily. And then after that picked up, I started refinancing the multifamily deals I was buying. I also had a hard money lender that would lend me money based on 65% of the after repaired cost. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that worked out. So those, even though it was high money, I could refinance those deals, take a chunk out, make that for another deposit and keep the machine rolling. It rolled pretty good until I started going bigger. The 40 and the 80 unit, those were 1031 exchanges. When I hit the 350, that's when I learned about syndicating. That's when I, that's when I realized if I was going to hit my next goal, which was 2000 units, I was going to have to use other people's money to get it.
1: Gotcha. So the 300 something units, how, how much, what was the capital raise on that?
0: The 350 unit was a $3.2 million raise.
1: $3.2 million raise. Okay. And so what did you have a lot of, by this time you have had a good track record. You have some experience. Did you run into much challenges with, with raising that money?
0: Uh, yeah. So I was going to, I knew I was going to start doing a bigger deal. So I started going to business groups and investors and that's basically how I raised th- those funds. I hate gotcha. it too. I hate going to these. I hated going to the business meetings. I hated going to business networking international. I became a member there. The Citrus Club, which is a national group. Every state has one. I started going there. But yeah, it was like that first raid was brutal because I'm really an introvert. Mm. Yeah, I really don't. Too. I don't like talking to people I don't know. It sounds weird, doesn't it? I've been <laughs> on so many different stages. I used to follow Tony Robbins on stage in front of like 20,000 people. They'll Learning need annex with Trump. But one-on-one with somebody, I'm, I'm awful. I hated asking people for money. And it wasn't until I think it was my third deal when sometimes I would go to the networking event and I wouldn't go in. I would go to the parking lot and this voice going back and forth in my head, do it, don't do it, don't do it. And this one particular time I was like, all right, I'm going home. And the voice was like, no, you can't go home. You need to rate this, you need money for this deal. And so this conversation is weird, but this conversation is going on in my hands. What does the matter with these people? I get this this great opportunity and they're getting shit money on their IRAs, their savings account, their CDs, and I can give them a much better return with less risk and and all that. And I thought, and all of a sudden it hit me. You're an idiot. You're going in there, you're asking people for money. You're trying to sell them on your deal. Just go in there and, and tell them what you're doing. Offer an opportunity and then see how that works. And if they can't see the opportunity, then- then tough for them. And if they do want the opportunity, then they'll raise their hand. And Mm -hmm. one of my strategies back then, and it still is because we're still raising money. I still go to family office events because that's where a lot of the big money is. But my strategy has always been to pick off people on the way to the coffee, right? They're individuals. I'm really bad at going into groups um, and trying to introduce myself. So I always try to pick off the individuals. One time I went over to Europe to um, a family office uh, meeting in Europe, and I was there for two days. One of the days, I couldn't get myself out of the hotel room. I said, you got to go down there. I "I don't want to go down there. I don't want to meet those people. But I spent all this money to be there, and I thought, what? Uh, During one of the breaks, I went down there, and uh, I said to a guy, I said, you know what? I I set a goal for each break, and I got a guy going over the coffee, and I said, look, I've got to go for this break to meet two people to introduce myself uh, and network with, and I was wondering if you were willing to be one of them. I smiled, the big smile. Absolutely. Puts out his hand, tells me who he is, what he's doing. And I was like, damn, that was really easy. It worked out really good. So I went over to the next person and I was like, Hey, my goal is to meet two people during this break. Will you be willing to be one of them? And that works so well that I've been using that. I still use that today to meet people that I don't know. And, and the other thing I wanted to say too, is one of the easiest things I've learned is to wait for somebody to say, what do you do? Instead of trying to give them a pitch, if you're mm-hmm. in front of a room trying to raise money and you got a chance to speak a little bit, then you practice your elevator pitch. But if you're in a networking event, you introduce yourself, you let the other person introduce themselves, you ask them what they do, and then you wait for them to say, What do you do? And I say, Oh, I, I invest in emerging real estate markets. And they're usually like, What? Because I, I invest in emerging real estate markets. And they think immediately in their head like emerging real estate market that must be profitable. They must be making mm. more money. So what I want them to do with that opening statement is to say, how does he do that? And then ask me, how do you do that? And then what I've learned just by that simple technique is they'll start asking me questions and their questions are usually their objections. And when I handle their objections, they will lead themselves down to the path where they say, hey, do you have a partner with people? If you ever partner partner on your deal, let me know. So they actually close themselves by doing that. And it's, it's so easy.
1: That is awesome. So very interesting that your capital, your first capital raises from networking events. W- with, what would you say if you could still remember the percentage that came, the percentage of, of investors that came from, from those networking events that you didn't have prior relationship with versus like friends, family or people that you had prior relationship with on that first raise? Do you happen to remember what the percentage is? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I remember uh, that quite vividly because, Tim, I was in a rock and roll band for eight years. I was crazy, and I had created quite a reputation for myself. So anybody that knew me was uh-huh. not going to invest in me. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I had to find people that didn't know me for a chance to get the money. So just about everybody that invested in my deals at the beginning didn't, had no idea who I was.
1: Oh, wow. That's awesome. And then would we're, we're going to go into this family office idea too, but are most of your raises 506B or C?
0: Uh, just a combination. depends on the investors.
1: Okay. But, gotcha.
0: Um, yeah.
1: And then, yeah, so you mentioned about targeting family offices. Um, and is that one of your top ways to to raise money?
0: To raise big money. Yeah. This uh, okay. to raise money and create a platform for yourself, which I didn't create my plat- my education company in order to, to create investors for my deals. Mm-hmm. I created the investment company because uh, I taught my brothers. I, was, I grew up poor. I taught my brothers and sisters how to invest. And then when people from the town realized that here's this crazy kid from a rock and roll band, this derelict, like a derelict, all of a sudden he's doing well. What's he doing? He's buying real estate. He's buying real estate in Brockton. It's like Brockton, that's a crazy city. And then it was like, it, as it they, first, I they thought I was going to fail. But then as it continued, and I actually became the third largest landlord in the city of Brockton. Oh, wow. And um, then people want to know how I did it. So I started teaching at the local real estate investment group. And a couple of times, there was uh, some other guys, uh, other people from visiting from out of state. And then they asked me to speak at their groups. And then before I knew it, hey, there's an opportunity here for another business. Because I'm a student, as you are, of Ron LeGrand. Yeah, yeah, I went to Ron LeGrand many years ago. Ron's an awesome guy. And when I realized that I wanted to start teaching what I learned, he's the one that taught me how to do single family flips. That's how I made my money from my Maltese, And so I he had a platinum group back back then and basically taught me how to create a platform and, and how to teach and how to do all that. So that's how that all got created. But nowadays people are are creating their own platforms and they're creating their own podcasts and Right, and uh, that's when I become an expert in the space and uh, giving information by giving content. People are drawn to you. And right, it works out really well. So between that and, and the family offices for big money, it's typically the way we we do races now.
1: Gotcha. Okay, and look, I know you've taught thousands of students. Now I I I know more of your successful students than probably like. Any other educators, mentors? Because simply because you've been around for so long, and and you, a lot of your students no, no, have no, become mentors not for themselves.
0: So long, it's because it works.
1: Oh, that's that's <laughs> yes. What I meant was long enough for them to have their success, and then became mentors themselves, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Most of the guys yeah. that are
0: teaching multi-family right now have been my students, yeah, which I'm exactly. proud
1: of. Yeah, it's really awesome, and you probably have. Uh, two three generations of them too not only like Thank your you. first generation of students
0: we're celebrating uh, our 20th year wow. and our big ultimate partnering event in phoenix in in october we'll be celebrating our 20th year 20th year education that's
1: awesome that is that's phenomenal so between between how you raise money and how your students raise money what would you say is the top three ways to raise money
0: certainly the events Going to there's all kinds of different. If you're looking to raise money, you go to the events that you look that, that you're buying that you're looking to buy a commercial event, a multi-family event, a single-family event, and you meet people there. And there are people there that are doers, and there are people that are want to be doers, mm-hmm. and the want to be doers ones that are willing to invest as well. And in our particular case, there are a lot of people that will come to us to learn how to invest and what a good deal looks like, so they can be a good investor in other people's deals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that worked out, uh, well as well, going to just to the local events is a great way to do it. Um, c- create the meetup groups. Now that COVID is, it's not over, but it's close to being over the meetup groups are back up and they're running again. And you can be going to, I had a, one of my clients had gone to seven different meetups uh, a week. You it's oh, wow. practicing the skills for raising money and creating a list and doing it. So those work really well. Creating a platform is really difficult. There's a lot of guys out there teaching how to create a platform, but it takes some time to actually create a, a platform to, be, to, to provide content, to be known as an expert. It's definitely, uh, it's worth the effort to do it mm-hmm. um, if you can get to that particular point. Uh, but then the family offices, um, I'm, I'm good friends with Richard Wilson Family mm-hmm. Office. Uh, there's a couple other good ones out there as well. And um, if you're going to go to a family office event, the thing mm-hmm. to do is to, you want to get on that stage. Because if you get on that stage, everybody knows you, and you don't have to network. That was always my goal: is to get on that stage. So with Richard Wilson, his fee was fifteen thousand for fifteen minutes, I and I gladly paid the fifteen thousand so I could go up there. And I would, and, and you can't pitch anything. What I would do is talk about what markets are emerging right now. I talk about the market cycle and what markets are emerging right now. People love the content, and then I would give away something free at my booth. Uh, for me, it was my emerging real estate book. So I was like, hey, if you like this and you want you want my emerging real estate book and you're interested in investing what I'm investing in, then come see me. And that works really mm-hmm. well. But you don't have to be on stage for those events to be worthwhile. Because I know, for instance, he has a super conference in December. And
1: mm-hmm. One of the things
0: we'll do with our internship students is we'll all meet there and we'll talk about, we'll have a meeting the day before and we'll talk about, and actually we have phone calls before that. And we talk about what it takes to actually network at an event like that, who to target, when to target them, when to be in the room, when to be out of the room, what to say, and and especially what not to say. Because when you're at a family office event, those people want to cut like a $5 million check or more, typically like a a 10, 15 or $20 million check. Mm -hmm. They don't want to be in any secondary markets. They want to be in the primary markets. It's just knowing the language of the family office advisor, or sometimes you'll actually get some of the family office members there as well. But everybody, there's such great events because everybody's there for the same reason. Either you are looking to get money, you're looking to raise money. So you're a syndicator, whether it be mm-hmm. family timber, fish farms, or your family office looking to invest in these things so you can get a return on your money. So, mm-hmm. it's just, so everybody knows that they're there to either match or no match. So the conversations are pretty quick. Hi, I'm Dave Lindall. I invest in emerging real estate markets. What do you do? Oh, I'm so-and-so from some family office, but we invest in startups. Okay, well, it's nice to meet you. Do you know any, I might say, do you know anybody that's investing in, in emerging real estate markets? Oh yeah, this family does. Okay, great. Or if they're looking for startups, I always try to connect. If I could be a connector at those events, I try mm-hmm. to connect as well. You're going to meet so many different people. And by, by bringing value, you never know what's going to happen. I forget, there's another event out there. They meet in Newport, Rhode Island every summer. Can't remember the name of it, but I remember I was talking to this guy and he said, uh, "Yeah, I'm raising money. I've got the ski lodge. I'm raising 100 million dollars for the ski lodge that I just bought up in New England." I was, "Oh, interesting." And I said, "I'm raising money for multi-family properties." Said, okay, so that we part. And then this, I meet this other guy a little bit later, and he says, "Yeah, I'm looking to put 100 million dollars into property." And I was like, I know you should meet. I put those two together. The guy that owned the ski lodge says to me, hey, do you do business in Phoenix? And I said, yes, it's one of the markets I'm interested in. He goes, I know a broker over there and he's got an off-market deal you might be interested in. And mm. he hooked me up with it. So if you can be a connector, it's, it's always
1: good. That's get. awesome. Family offices, whenever I hear about them, I hear that if they do write a big check in your deal, they want a lot of control. Um, and so based, almost like they become the majority partner, you become the minority partner. Uh, how do you structure your deals with family offices so that way you retain as much of that control as possible?
0: Yeah, it's, it's all a negotiation. Obviously, they're writing the big check. So we bring them in. We never, it's never anything less than a 50-50 in terms of control because we don't want to give up control. They don't want to give up control. Um, mm-hmm. It's usually an 80-20 split. That's what they like to see. Sometimes it depends on the deal. Some people are some people are 90-10, 90-10 for the family office, 10% for the investor, 80-20 is the typical. But mm-hmm. if you get a deal, you're going to be bringing back like this big return. I won't settle for an 80-20. I want a 70-30 or a 60-40 because we're all going to make so much money uh, on the mm-hmm. deal. And even if they're putting up all the money, they're still not going to be able to put up that amount of money and get a better return somewhere else. Uh, in the cases where I bring a really good deal to the table. So I ne- uh, I negotiate that. I just find the right family office to do business with. So I'll negotiate that. And I'll also negotiate the acquisition fee. You typically, I like to get three to 5%. You say three to 5% on acquisition fee for family office. And they're like, they're jaw drops. I was like, what? <laughs> Crazy. And uh, but so I say three to 5% so they can come back with their 1% and then we can meet up to 2.5%. So that's
1: gotcha. so Yeah. That's and awesome. And again, if you bring a really good deal to the table, Get paid for it. So what size deal before someone should consider a family office?
0: They're going to want to write a minimum of $5 million check. So you're looking okay. at a $15 million deal. Usually. Okay. $12 to $15 million deal.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. But, you know,
0: so- but let me just say this to him. It's, that shouldn't stop you from going to a family office to try to raise funds. because, but Because going to these meetings... What it will do, it will open up your eyes to the amount of capital that's actually out there. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like Mm -hmm. me, I grew up poor. I had these limiting beliefs about money and what was available and what would actually I could use and what people would do with me. And then you go to a family office event, and this is like a spiel that I give to um, my mentorship students as well. So you go to a family office event, you will expand your horizon to the effect that how much can actually come in. I remember, there's this guy, Tom, he's a surfer from Florida. He built me a surfboard actually, which is awesome. And he's like, Dave, I'm not going to go to that event because I'm just starting out. I said, This is the perfect time to go because then it would break down your barriers. So after the first break, he comes to me and he goes, Dave, you're not gonna believe this. The guy next to me, he's a surfer. Because one of the things we always talk about is finding commonality, right? The guy next to me, he's a surfer. That's awesome. He's also he he also manages a two billion dollar fund and wow. told me whenever I need money to let him know. So they connected <laughs> from the surfing, and then the guy has a lot of money and so all of a sudden he's holy shit! I need to go out there. I get you get a you get a, a $15, $20 million dollar deal. You know if you get any big deals, please bring them my way. So
1: that's awesome. That's,
0: well, go just help the family offices to
1: okay. And then in terms of building relationship with family offices versus like your retail investors, uh, can you share with us what are some of the nuances? Into, both in building relationship and also maintaining that relationship, what are some of the differences? and those two?
0: Um, nobody's going to do business with you unless they like and trust you first. And the trust is the big factor in the back end. And that's why you, as the CEO of your real estate investment company, you can delegate everything except the money raise because mm. people want to talk to you. Uh, um, in terms of the retail investor, typically you can meet somebody, you can start a relationship with them. They might feel comfortable after the first meeting and write a check to you. With a family office, it's different. You got to meet with the advisor first the advisor has to go to the family office tell them about you then you meet with the family you might meet with them once you might meet with them twice but you actually start a relationship they're not looking they're not looking to do like a one off deal they're looking to create a relationship that's long lasting just like the deals i go into one of the mistakes that that people will make going into a family office and talking to them is saying like i teach emerging markets so we're usually in and out of a market within 3 to 7 years family offices do not want to hear that they want to be mm. in a good, solid primary market, and they want to be in there for a minimum of 20 years, wow. 20 to 30. Yep. So you make sure that, but you don't tell them you're going to be out of this deal in five years with X amount of return. Because I go, you no, know, we're going to be in this deal for the long-term, and this is what we're expecting to get through value at throughout the years. So mm. between the two.
1: They Gosh. don't want to buy
0: you out point too, which is fine because if you really, if it's a great legacy property, you never want to be bought out. But if it's in a market that you know that you're going to be out of in a you know, short period of time, mm. good buy you out and then go into another market. Very cool.
1: Okay. So whenever you bring a deal to them, your goal would then be that they're longer term deals. So if it's a shorter term deal, you wouldn't bother bringing it to their attention. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. The deals that were, yeah, exactly. The deals that we know we're going to be in, like a value add in a market that's not in a secondary market. That's Mm -hmm. not going to, that's not going to apply with a family office.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Do you have any funds?
0: No, actually, no. We, I, is, do you know Kim Taylor?
1: Oh, uh, no. Attorney, attorney,
0: no. She's uh, we've been using her for a while. So I was talking to her about a fund just a couple of days ago, actually. We see this opportunity in the retail space right now. So we thought we'd raise a fund for it. First, we want to prove the concept, so we bring a couple of deals to the table to our investors. But the I tried to raise a fund. There was one point that we were in a few years ago that we were actually closing like a complex and a half every month. We were in the middle of raises. One of the mistakes I made is we were trying to close five properties at the same time, confused our investors. They're like, what should I go into? We expose all the investors to all the different deals instead of just segmenting the list and expose. This is a really important point for you guys that are syndicating is don't send multiple deals to your investors. Do one deal at a time. Segment your list. Figure out who does what, and then you won't confuse them. You'll be able to do the raise. Because on that particular five-deal raise, I had to come out of pocket a few million dollars and backfill those because mm. the investors are just like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And a confused mind says, No. Mm-hmm. I forgot what point I was, getting to. About point was the I fund?
1: getting to. About the fund.
0: Oh, yeah. So the fund. So we tried it. So then we thought, well, let's just create a fund, a $20 million fund. But at this point, I don't know how many properties we had bought, but we had trained our investors to, to be able to see the property, know what the returns were going to be, what the extra strategy was. So when we did the $20 million fund, we are trying to raise it. We had a really hard time raising it. It's like, why are we having such a hard time raising the fund? And Jeannie, in my office said, said it's because they want to see the groceries. They're used to seeing the groceries. They want to see the groceries before they want the money in. We filled that fund with four deals and then we we, we were able to raise it. So, mm-hmm. since that point we we were never really I was never really interested in raising a fund until recently, but still, we're gonna prove the concept before we do the
1: fund. Gotcha. Well, that's good to know. Do you ever raise money for other people's deals, or do do you only do it for your own deals? i we this is what
0: we do. so we've got client base all throughout the country. Mm-hmm. so I like to sponsor deals. So when we have a client that that is out there doing deals and they need a sponsor, mm-hmm. first I want them to come to me the market that either I don't like or or to deal that's too small, I like a hundred plus unit deals in emerging market. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's a, too small, then we'll refer them over to other people. Usually other clients, because we've got so many at this point that in every primary, secondary, tertiary market, we've got uh, successful investors in there, which we, which are happy to do deals uh, with other people that are trained the same way. Mm-hmm. So so I don't raise money for other people, but uh, if other people uh, inside of our client base need it, we associate
1: I know you, you've you been doing this for so long. You've seen the market turns. What's your crystal ball telling you now in, in this upcoming market, especially when it comes to raising money?
0: There's, there's still a lot of dry powder out there after COVID, but there's a lot of good deals that were done actually during, done during COVID, which is good. The ability to raise money, the stock market is having its problems right now. Whenever the stock market crashes, usually the money flows into real estate. With inflation, the money flows into real estate. I'll tell you, we we were expecting this reset to happen right after the election. Mm-hmm. And then COVID hit. And then that screwed up the market for a year. And then the housing shortage hit, which is, is it's screwing up the market. But at the same time, the market has not reset yet. And depending on the depths of this recession, I'm hoping it's a deeper recession, So the markets reset. We can all get in better pricing. Coming up, uh, I think the thing that's working against us is still the housing shortage and the demographic shift that's happening right now. There's going to be more people over the next 10 years becoming 18 and over the prime renting years in the next 10 years that there's ever been in the history of family, of family investing. So I saw it. they're great markets to be in. I just love that family investing when you're investing in value add, when you're investing in emerging markets. It's always a great strategy. I just don't know we're going to hit that big reset that we saw like in 2008, 2009. Mm hmm.
1: OK. And then in terms of we're going into a recession or we're already in a recession, is there. We're you, yeah, we're already in it. Do you see any changes or any difference in the the ease of raising money in a recession?
0: No, I haven't. I haven't I'm just, so I'm not just starting out raising money. I've got people that come to us on a regular basis asking us if they can place funds. So I'm not that
1: Do you, do you have a good question. Well, do you have like more of those people coming to you now than normal?
0: When the stock, yeah, when the stock market started going down, okay. they started coming. It always happens like that.
1: Gotcha. Okay.
0: So <laughs> because so- here's the thing, especially people that are already investing uh, with mm-hmm. us, is they just saw their their portfolio, their retirement fund, or their portfolio drop fifty percent, forty percent, sixty percent, but they still got their real estate appreciate. They took up their real estate uh, check, their quarterly check. That came in and it was the same amount. It didn't go down any In Damn, man, maybe real estate I should put more money mm. in real estate.
1: Yeah. So whenever the stock market goes down, that will be a good time for us to make posts about investing in real estate, huh?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and the other argument, too, is during inflationary times, real estate, um, gold, Bitcoin, all mm-hmm. great inflationary. Okay. And the reason, just so I can back up that statement, the reason that there are good, real estate is a good inflationary hedge is because Uh, during times of inflation, uh, costs go up. Uh, To cover the cost, rents must go up. As rents and costs go up, if you can get your NOI rising faster than the costs are, then your values go up. So that's why real estate is a good hedge uh, during inflationary times.
1: Gotcha. Okay. What are some of your favorite tools or resources uh, when it comes to raising money, syndications?
0: Um, I use, right now, we just, we've got everybody in invest next. Okay. So we use that to put our deals on the, out in the marketplace. I use active Campaign to, for my investor lists, um, to communicate with them. It's different. I separate my education company and my investor list. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those are the the main things we do. I have a graphic designer that designs all of the, um, operating memorandum, the offering memorandums.
1: Gotcha. Okay. And um, what are some of your your big goals or passion these days? I mean, you've accomplished so much. So, what's uh, you know, what yeah, what um, drives you these days?
0: My kids. I oh. I was just talking to somebody the other day. It's got this portfolio. Actually, our portfolio is at the low point right now because people were were offering such crazy prices. I'll give you an example. We were selling in, uh, in Huntsville. This is the only time since 2006 that I have not owned in Huntsville, Alabama. And that's because the last property that we had there, we decided to check the market, to see what it was doing. This is a year ago. And mm-hmm. um, broker gave us an unsolicited offer for five point five point three million. And we're like, wow, that would be that would give us give the investors their return in two years that we projected in five. That will be good. And then we could potentially move this money into uh, another property. So they said they were an all cash buyer, and they were going to close in thirty days. And they basically dicked around with us for we were on day forty five. We get to day fifty. So what's going on? They hadn't even officially signed the contract after the LOI. So Mm -hmm. then all of a sudden we get another unsolicited unsolicited offer for six point two, then another one for six point four, and then Mm -hmm. another one for six point five. Wow. So we're like, we're not in contract with, the, with these other people. We vetted out the other three, We chose the 6.4. They were all pissed off. Like, you can't do that. You signed an LOI. It's like that LOI was only good for 48 hours and you never came to the table. He dicked around with us for 45 days. You never came to the table. So we're taking this offer and we closed it. And that's the way it's been. I've got, I got a client out there that owned a bunch of properties. She was never going to sell. She owns in Atlanta and in Nashville. And she just got offered these crazy prices, made a profit of over $24 million in a year selling her properties. And now she her and her partner moved to Utah and then just like hanging out, living the dream. That's just the way it's been. So our portfolio is the lowest it's been since I started investing way back in 1996. But we're ramping up for the next phase. I'm going to take one more. Once it's in your blood, it's fun to do. I do it from home now. I choose my markets wisely. I choose the markets that I can fly into at night and be home by, I mean, fly into in the morning, be home at night too, so I can be with my kids. A lot of times I've got this business, so most of it's on autopilot in the sense that if I don't want to go to a property, I don't have to because I don't like to travel anymore. Tim, we both lived our life on the road. For, for me, it was 12 years. I was building the education company, and I was buying in emerging markets. So I was never home, but I didn't have a I didn't have kids. I come from a big family, but I didn't have kids, and it was exciting. And then I burnt out after uh, probably burnt out after year six, but I kept doing it for another six years. And then I stopped six years ago. Had kids, had twins, and then I, two years later, I had another. Completely got completely off the road. Had everybody else managing my stuff. Uh, I was looking at new opportunities and basically outsourced everything, which was great. And uh, now we see the opportunity is, is starting to uh, perk up again. And uh, it's going to be a, a good time to make another run. I can start teaching my kids how to do it.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, which which brings me to the next questions. What I know your kids are super young, <laughs> still very young. They hey, have a long way to go.
0: Investing. Tim, this is a true fact. My kids came out with a deed in their hand i don't know how it happened
1: (laughs) that's hilarious that's funny (laughs) so what's what are you teaching your kids that perhaps you don't see other parents teaching teaching their kids either what are you currently teaching them or what are you planning to teach them to to prepare them for their investing career
0: i just teach them about money i start from the very beginning. my kids we actually i live in a i live in a high-end town but there's a walmart the next town over my kids I mean, love to go to what they call it Walmart, I don't know why, but they love going there to, to get a toy. They can either get a small, medium, or a large toy, depending upon what's going on in our lives. And so I tell them they got to buy it themselves and they got to earn their own money. So my kids at, at uh, five years old had their first lemonade stand. Oh. I train them that you could either I could you could either do this for five dollars an hour or you could make so many of these and I'll pay you five dollars for each one. It's up to you. But, I'll, but I will tell you, you could probably make four of these in that hour. What do you want to do? You know what I mean? So it's all, well, I'm trying to prepare them financially to be able to actually manage what I'm going to leave them
1: mm. and grow be better. I love it. That's awesome. All right, Dave, we're going to be wrapping up our our, our interview section here. But uh, before, yeah, before we wrap it up, what what would be like like a a a really good word of wisdom uh, or lesson that uh, you want to leave with our audience here?
0: I can tell you in in the 20 plus years that we've been teaching other people how to do this, it took me three years to figure out that if you don't get the mindset right, then you're not going to be successful. And that's with anything in life. And that's the thing that turned me around. And I didn't even put the two and two together. So I'm teaching other people how to do it, but my life didn't change until I changed my mindset. So it's business is a game of business skills coupled with mindset. Doesn't matter how good you are at the business skills if you don't have the mindset you're not going to be successful. From you know, one of the things we teach is from this point forward just continuously feed yourself with the good mindset books, you know, mindset books, podcasts, uh, whatever some great books, Dr. Joe Dispenza, uh, that guy is awesome. The, my, what got me started was uh, Lead the Field by Earl Nightingale, which oh, is yeah. free now on, yeah, on YouTube. It's free, three hours and 47 minutes, I think. "Awaken mm-hmm. the Giant Within is free on YouTube as well. And then Tony, all Tony Robbins' stuff is good. So if you just work on the mindset stuff, then the, the business stuff uh, takes care of itself.
1: That's awesome. I love that. All right. So uh, no, for, for the people that want to uh, reach out to you, connect with you, where would you like to send them?
0: If you want to, you can reach out to me at rementor.com. You feel free. If anybody wants to have a chat, call me at 781-878-7114. That's the office. We get a free book offer. If you want a free copy, to Family Millions, you can go to davesfreebook.com, davesfreebook.com. You pay for shipping and handling, and you get the book, and we be happy to send it to you. And of course, we're going to try to upsell you. We're in the education space as well. Oh, somebody's got it already. My friend from (laughs) Miami. See you again. Yeah, That's and awesome. also uh, Ronaldo from Massachusetts come down and visit us We're in Rockland. Be happy to host you by some lunch.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, and there there was uh, Steve uh, uh, Cutsell ask about um, reaching out to you about a deal that they have. If you want to come in as a sponsor on the deal, so what? Reaching out to your office number is the best way to do that.
0: Yeah, uh, you can call the office 781-878-7114. Leave the, I'm going to be on, a, I just realized I have to be on another call right now. Uh, okay. actually with an Some There's a, one of my clients has a, a group of doctors that has a big fund. They're looking to go gotcha. my family. But so just leave them the message and then I will call you back as soon as I get off this other call.
1: Awesome. I love being with you. Thank you, buddy. I love you. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on this uh, interview with us today. This has been The Naked Truth. Our mission is to give it to you raw. If you got value from this episode, you're invited to leave an honest written review and share this episode with a friend. Thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next episode.